This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, let the games begin. Why the competition trope is so popular in speculative fiction. Okay, so, despite (laughs) evidence to the contrary, humans are some of the most cooperative species of the animal kingdom. I know, you might be thinking, hold on a second. Um... (laughs) Now, if that does seem implausible, consider how many times we, you know, how many times a day we each rely, not just on the cooperation of our own family and friends, but on that of strangers. Yeah. And and not just professionals like doctors, nurses, bus drivers, etc. But the average stranger on the street, um, there's there's kind of this perception of, of how we should interact with each other that most people do actually do automatically. Yeah. Um, It's so common, I think we don't even notice it. And yeah, there are those who cheat or display nepotism or whatever, but we do have an inherent sense of decency and fair play, which means that we all decry those individuals as the worst people (laughs) when, when they're found out. I mean, just think about driving, for example. Oh my god, can, yeah. Can, In fact, don't think about yeah, driving. <laughs> driving. Driving would not work without cooperation, without us all agreeing that that sign means that and we're all going to, you know, to the point that if someone doesn't follow the rules, we look at them like, you dickhead. <laughs> yeah, and yes, there's legislation and things in place to help ensure with things like that. There should be, because obviously driving is quite dangerous. Yes. Um, but Madeline's right, an awful lot of that flies on the fact that we're cooperating with each other on a shared set of rules regarding road usage. Yes. <laughs> Basically, it's the whole don't be too much of a dick today thing, which most of us subscribe to. Yes. <laughs> most of us agree that's rather important. <laughs> yes. Um, So with all that in mind, why are we so enthralled by competition? So much so that it's one of the most buttery tropes in speculative fiction. Ah, it is. All that buttery goodness. (laughs) So why do competitions matter? Um, Look, we've all seen headlines that state everything is going to the dogs because the competitive element is being removed from, uh, like, for example, school sports days. And honestly... um, we're not here to debate that today. That's no. that's not what we're... We're not getting into that. <laughs> <laughs> we're not. Um, but what we can say with confidence is that despite our cooperative hardwiring, we're equally hardwired for competition. All animals are. It's kind of the basis of evolution. Yes. However, it is... It's taken a more deliberate turn, I think, in humans. Um, from from Cro-Magnons and other early societies coming together to to compete in races and hunting games to the evolution of team sports, where the competition is less about the individual and more about endorsing the very spirit of cooperation. Or it should be. (laughs) You can always tell the good football teams from the bad football teams, even if you don't really like football or, you know, soccer for those people in America, um, because the good football teams play as a team first and as individual stars second. Um, When England puts together a side that is very, very heavy on the individual stars, we know that we'll get so far and no further because they're not always great at 
playing as a team, whereas Ireland always plays really, really well as a team, but doesn't necessarily have as many standout stars, if you see what I mean. Yeah. That's about that's straining the limit of my football knowledge. But <laughs> I'll get my nephew on if people are really interested. He's yeah. eight years old and absolutely football mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. There's significant evidence that competition scratches an itch that can't be reached any other way. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking in very simplistic terms here because if I disappear off into the realms of science, we might never see me again for this episode. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, feel-good chemicals like dopamine are literally released during the com- the competitive process and very significantly after winning or succeeding. Yes. So, uh, why does it matter? Uh, well, in evolutionary and anthropological terms, competition was and is a safe way to practice and enhance essential skills necessary for survival. Yeah, and because we are a cooperative species, benefiting one benefits the species as a whole because we all tend to learn from each other and emulate each other and we you know how many kids again using the football example look at star football players and think i want to be a football player and they will try harder at sports and things because of it it's a very simple um example right there yeah um but there's this whole you know the cooperation thing again and instilling the desire to succeed is as important now as it ever was when we were you know hunting mammoths yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) sorry i'm just imagining (laughs) star football players give them a spear right in order to learn cooperation you're gonna go and hunt some mammoth Mammoth off you go yeah (laughs) Well, we absolutely did not bring down, um, you know, single hunters will bring down big game, you know, with spears and what have you, but they absolutely did not bring down a mammoth alone because that no. would literally be, have been impossible yes. for us. <laughs> it was very much a team effort, probably the entire tribe all working together. Yeah. Of course, it, it doesn't actually have to be about spear throwing or even physical prowess. I mean, the reality is that one of the most popular shows imported from the UK, uh, particularly to the US, is The Great British Bake Off. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, and it's weirdly compulsive. I mean, I, I don't necessarily get really invested in a particular person, and I wouldn't say I watch it that often. I love watching cakes and stuff being made, maybe because I don't really make cakes and stuff because then I'd have cake around all the time which would be bad (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I'm always sort of like oh wow that's amazing that was so creative and I think of it as a piece of art but a lot of people really get into it and they're 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 team whoever yeah and I I do find it interesting that something that is so quintessentially British as you know a cake competition it you know it's like a a glorified WI event isn't it yeah yeah America loves it. I think it's great. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is that people will create competitions out of stuff that doesn't isn't even a competition. Yeah. Um like we will create teams and things. Um for, like for example Okay, this is going to sound silly, but when, you know, when people are reading fans of a of a book or things like that, you'll get obviously these they're called shipping wars. It's a competition. People yeah. get competitive with one another, and the thing is, like, it was never really a competition in the in the books with who got who. It's just a narrative, you know. There's, there's not actual people competing in the book because the author is the one who's writing it all. You know, it's a it's yeah. a single narrative, but then people create competition. 
<laughs> with yeah. one another. So it's amazing that we will literally create competition where there is no competition. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very much so. So with that in mind, let's actually talk about competition in speculative fiction. Um, I mean, because frankly, competition and often strange sports are rife in speculative fiction and we love them. I mean, you know, even if you're not a sporty person, frankly, you can still get into it. Um, say what you want about, you know, like um, not getting into all the political sides of Harry Potter and stuff like that. But like, I remember back when I was little, how obsessed people were with Quidditch. It wasn't yeah. a, it, to the point that it is now a real sport. <laughs> yes, which I I find kind of a bit weird to be honest. But yeah, absolutely. It was. I'm not someone who actually enjoys watching sport generally because mm. I I prefer to take part or I'm like. I know I'm awful in this respect. I played a lot of team sports at school, but I never really was interested in watching them. And, you know, now obviously it's been many years since I've been at school and I'm not really interested in watching team sport. I don't get invested. I don't really support a team or anything. Yeah. Um, And I, I even find sometimes that, you know, martial arts matches and things can be quite boring to watch even though i know about all the intricacies and what's going on and who's misstepped yeah and what all the tiny maneuvers mean i'm still like i could be doing something else yeah frankly <laughs> but yeah in, in books you present me something like uh, i guess quidditch again is the obvious example but also things like dragon writing or something like that yeah, something improbable and it, it's just really easy to get invested in something like that yeah Absolutely. Things that you wouldn't be interested in otherwise. Uh, I've, I've got another one. Um, do you remember the, the the sort of the revamp they did with the Herbie film with, I think it was Lindsay Lohan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had no interest in racing at all. No. In but, fact, I was act- actively antagonistic towards car, any sort of car racing. Yeah. And yet, I mean, I like that film. <laughs> I was super into it when they were racing. <laughs> I was yeah. really invested. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so yes, I'm right there with you. And again, I I will talk about it a bit more later. But I've mentioned it before, and that is "Fence" by C.S. Pa- uh, Passet. Mm. And it's just I don't have a massive investment in the world of fencing, but for some reason, it just works. <laughs> yeah. We just so cannot anyway. seem to get away from it, um, you know, and, and and that's whether it it's being kind of put in as a as a second tier aspect of the world building, such as with Quidditch, um, or it's a main part of the plot, such as in the Hunger Games. You know, the the trope is a popular addition. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is, it's also a multifunctional trope, which can fulfill a number of different needs depending on the type of story. So um, we're going to get into what those those sort of needs are in a bit more in a minute and have a bit more of a discussion about various examples. But as you were talking about, uh, weirdly, as you were talking about Herbie, I suddenly immediately I started thinking about jousting. Yes. Which I know is a very random sidestep, but <laughs> but in the um, Tamora Pierce's Protector of the Small series, an awful lot of that series works because 
big chunks of the books are kind of a training montage where Caladri of Mindelin gets better at her nightly duties. Yes. So um, when she you get to the third book where she's actually made a squire to a very, you know, quite a famous knight who she wasn't expecting to get an offer from. And he's a big guy. I mean, they, they actually call him the giant killer because he's a, a bigger guy. Um, and he says, yeah, you, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to tilt, how to joust. And then we're going to practice against each other. And Caladri is not a small girl, but she's kind of like, fuck, <laughs> because he's never been beaten. Yeah. And the idea, you know, to be honest, anyone who's semi-competent going against someone who's never learned to joust is a bit sort of like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, a, a, an expert knight in full jousting armour on, like, a 20-hand destrier that's moving at about 40 miles an hour is definitely something to worry about. Yes. <laughs> and it really goes into the intricacies of jousting and things to the point where I'm like, I have no desire to, li- I literally have no desire to joust anybody, honestly. But I'm like, it it made me an expert in jousting just on technicalities because I was glued to my seat reading it. Yes, um, and I've I've had that on a number of occasions with with various different ones. I mean, like I I don't like like you. I don't really care about sports, but I've seen sports stories, sports fiction where I I sort of go away like I have now lots of knowledge about this sports and different maneuvers and stuff like that. Um, and now I'm interested in the sport. <laughs> But it was because of the story, and it's not really anything to do with the sport. Yeah, and yet the story wouldn't work without without exactly. the sport in, there in the first exactly. place. Exactly, and it was because of that competition. And usually, part and parcel with the competition, as you said, is the camaraderie that goes along yeah. with it. Um, you know, this the massive sense of camaraderie and the sense that uh, of teams people coming together you've get and it mixes in with the found family as well yeah you know that um, can be a big part of it Partic- uh, particularly delicious i'm really going off on a tangent i'm sorry i will try and stick to the structure that, that i insisted upon but i'm like um when you're talking about found family i'm like one delicious iteration is when you've got people who are forced onto a team together and they don't like each other and then through the process of gradually learning to admire each other's skill they come to sort of be like yeah you're all right you know (laughs) absolutely it is delicious it's all the buttery goodness no wonder people like it so much um and you know there's you can have variations on this it doesn't have to be sort of whacking each other with sticks on horseback or anything like that it can be like the subtler elements of competition so a strive for success story or a fixer upper story like yeah. um you know the cozy fantasy of legends and lattes or bookshops and bone dust where the competition element is not overtly competitive except that in order to make something successful you do need to compete on some level yeah um, or, you know, the essential for survival, gritty, dystopian sort of sci-fi of Red Rising, which is kind of like a sci-fi Hunger Games in some respect. Mm-hmm. I can't comment too intelligently on it because I only really know the outline. I haven't actually got around to reading the books yet, but yeah. I am reliably informed that that is the direction they kind of go in. So maybe I'll bump them up my TBR. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so um, how... Can the trope be used? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think probably number one 
is um, championing an underdog. Uh, so, I mean, we see that in things like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, example. I mean, we love this trope. I say we pretty generally, but we love to see an underdog succeed for the reasons that it means that anybody theoretically could succeed. And who wants to be the person in the crowd cheering for the person who has started with all the advantages and is the sure run winner? Yeah. You know, we, we like a dark horse. We like somebody who hasn't set out with all those advantages. We like somebody who's had to overcome things in order to get there. So, so yeah, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is a, a great example of that. And obviously there's, there's several elements of competition there mm. because... You know, Harry started off from the position of he shouldn't have been in that comp. The Shriver's a tournament yeah. at all. He's younger than everybody. <laughs> he's younger than everyone. Ergo, he's learned less magic than everyone else. And this is a competition that kills people quite literally, or could do potentially. Um, he's not really allowed help, and there's something in Harry where he's not very good at asking for help either. Yeah. Um, even though the others are kind of like flirting with cheating by sort of like. You know, getting help and stuff. Um, also, Fourth Wing, which I read and I recommended recently, where the main character um, doesn't want to be at this elite military academy learning to be a dragon rider, where the dragons might, you know, kill you during the threshing. Um, or, you know, there's only a certain number of places, so the recruits are actually actively encouraged to thin out the competition before it gets to that stage. Yeah. She doesn't want to be there. Her mother has forced her into it. She actually wanted to go and be a scribe, but her brother died, so she was pushed into the entire situation. And she's starting from the disadvantage of having a musculoskeletal disorder, whereby her joints will sublax. And she literally can't stay in the saddle on, on dragon back when she gets to that point. Um, and I thought it was a really good way of them showing that you can actually modify something um, they, they make a modified saddle. There's nothing in the rules to say that, that a, a dragon rider can't have a modified saddle to help them stay on their dragon's back. I mean, and they make the point that she's worked just as hard as everyone else. It's just at a certain point when the dragon is like literally upside down in the air, her knees will give out and she can't hold on. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a really, really good one. It's... I, a lot of people have gone, oh, this book is awful, the hype and everything. And then loads of other people are like, oh my god, the hype is real, it's so good. I'm afraid I come down on the side of, the hype is real. It's a great adventure story, great new adult, sort of um, very accessible, very fun, with a character that you can't help but like because she is, she is the dark horse. You don't expect her to do as well as she does. And she does a lot of what she does, not out of strength or physical prowess, but out of intelligence and kindness as well yeah i mean this is uh, another good example and regardless of what you feel about it uh, the phantom menace you know the number one of the the star wars yeah. um there's a whole race sequence you know <laughs> yeah the sort of thing that would normally make me go oh do i have to sit through this and instead i'm like no this is really really gripping yeah we obviously want you know, child Anakin to win, even though he turns into one of the greatest Jedi serial killers of all time. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is that we're with, we know that he's going to turn into one of the greatest Jedi serial killers of all time. And yet... <laughs> and yet we're still right there with him. Um, it's great. So 
I mean, there's there's probably a deeper psychological connection with the whole underdog thing, but I think we even like it in, you know, things like the Olympics and things like that. Yes. We like somebody who has pulled themselves up from nothing. That's a great that's a great story to sell, in order to get, or even you know, writers and things. Yeah, I oh, mean, this person came from nothing, was disadvantaged. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the the first things you see with like the X Factor and stuff like that. Is what's your sob story? Yeah. You know, uh, you know h- how far were you? They they, they don't want to show people as like oh I've been having singing lessons since I was etc. or you know stuff like that. But they have to, or, or if they do that, they have to they have to counter it. People want the unlikely winner. I think it's why you know singers like Susan Boyle, for example, uh, yeah. you know, became such a sensation was that no one was expecting that. Yeah, it's like I guess if I was if I was to pitch my own sob story, it would be kind of like um, something along the lines of yeah, I paid for my karate lessons by cutting lawns <laughs> as a teenager, and then eventually by teaching karate um, and obviously getting getting stuff uh, get getting getting my own training and stuff for free because I was willing to devote lots of time to teaching, etc. And yeah. then. Um, making the British team and going out to South Africa and competing in the World Championships kind of thing. It's that sort of thing. They don't want to hear, oh yes, well mummy bought me a dojo, <laughs> daddy owned Shropshire. <laughs> yes. In fact, if you, that is your story, then um, you're, the, you're the villain. <laughs> you're the yeah. bad guy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, another way the trope can be used, the development of a character and this is a really important one, and I don't think it's one that people obviously necessarily consciously think when they're reading any sort of story which has holds a strong comp- competitive element. Mm. But how does the character face adversity? And ideally, it must be one where they they go through this series of changes whereby they fall flat on their face and they pick themselves up and they have a small success and it repeats, but it repeats in such a way that they get a little bit better every time and that the audience doesn't automatically notice that they are falling flat on their face so often. Yes. (laughs) Because otherwise it's just like, oh, for God's sake, just get on with it. Um, But it's like every time they overcome a hurdle, there must be a greater hurdle. Yes. Um, Fourth Wing does do that, but... (laughs) For me, a really great example is the Karate Kid, the original film. Yeah. Um, don't learn your karate from that, guys. Really. Yeah. <laughs> don't. don't. But in terms of a a film which shows someone who, again, an underdog character mm-hmm. who is disadvantaged compared to the bullies, and overcoming that sense of being alienated because he's been moved to this new school. He doesn't know anyone. He's always wanted to learn karate, but they can't really afford lessons. And then it turns out that the dojo nearby actually is the place teaching his bullies, one of whom is a junior instructor. It's like, okay, already Cobra Kai is doing something wrong because they're teaching kids to be bullies rather than drumming them out of the dojo. That should be like the first thing you learn. Anyway, that aside, it's this coming from a different different perspective and you know finding balance within yourself and essentially um daniel larusso kind of overcomes a lot of stuff within himself which is almost more important mm-hmm. than finally triumphing against the bullies yes 
and it's you see it in examples of again the hero's journey is just rife with it. It, it I think it's why the, the two things work together and why we love a training montage and we see it all the time but it's the it is the failure and the success yes um, yeah. it, and it's the overcoming and how um, and then the, the the that wonderful dopamine release when we see them succeed where we see their efforts are paying off slowly, slowly. Because if it was just failure after failure and you con- continue to see them work hard and then they didn't get anywhere, that yeah, that wouldn't be a compelling story. Even if it would be a lived reality, which is that you can have someone who is an excellent sports person or an ex- you know excellent in a competition and has been working hard all of this time and really pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, but they just keep failing and yet they have the gumption to keep going we wouldn't actually in terms of story we wouldn't really enjoy that um at all so it the the competition has to directly reflect the character growth and as they grow as a character so too do their skills in order to win the competition grow yeah um two sorry two sidebars that have occurred to me for this bit um with development of a character um one is that this actually works really well in heist and con situations in fiction as well so it doesn't have to be a literal competition it can be that competition mentality where they've got to overcome obstacles and things in setting up a complicated heist i think that's partly why we love a heist situation yes (laughs) so six of crows for example um is, is a pretty good example of that. It's not an obvious competition, but the whole sort of learning to get learning to work together as a team thing really taps into this. Yes, and overcoming various obstacles and personal issues and things as well. Um, my second point is um, directly off what Madeline was just saying about it's not satisfying to watch a character development where they do everything right and and still fail. Yeah, in the same way. And it's something that the next generation played with where um, Wesley Crusher was taking exams and because he stopped to help somebody else, he ended up failing and they ended up passing. And Picard actually literally says it's possible to do everything right and still fail. And I think we were supposed to take away the lesson that, you know, failure isn't something to be ashamed of, which is true. It's absolutely true. Failure is just a way station on the way to success. It's, it's It's a teacher. It's a learning tool. And we shouldn't give it any more power than that. But as a child, that was not a satisfying episode of Star Trek. Because no. you want to see him win. Yeah, you want to you you want there to be this kind of this you know something else which basically allows for that, which recognises the hard work. Yeah, you want a one-to-one correlation between hard work and success, which, as you said, you don't get in real life, really. Yeah, not always. (laughs) You can maximise your chances, but sometimes you will still fail. Yeah. Um, And it is an important lesson, but it doesn't necessarily make for the most satisfying fiction. Yes. And it's why I think a lot of the time you do get these examples of the competition where you have someone who is there because of their rich and they've had the opportunity to be there, and someone who is there because they're working hard. Because the they, the reason they've done that is that isn't because they're trying to equate this... Well, I think a little bit. They're equating less examples of classism and stuff into it, but also often because it, it's a really good shortcut to basically create this 
this narrative which is if you work hard you will do better than the person who doesn't work hard which isn't always true (laughs) actually sometimes people are just innately good at something and you can work really really bloody hard and they don't have and they do nothing and they still do better off than you yeah but i mean i have to i mean this kind of taps into the whole myth of talent thing obviously talent isn't a myth some people start with a head start some people start so far down the track they're practically at the finish line yeah and that's not just about that's not just about you know uh privilege or wealth or whatever it can simply be that they came out of the box with a bit more natural aptitude than you and you are going to have to run five times as fast to even you know eat their dust yeah it's just the thing um for example i have a friend who is quite literally a mathematical genius and it's not that i can't understand some of what she says with regard to maths obviously it's just that i would have to work for years to get to where she is Mm. to the point where it would be such a slow process for me that i almost wouldn't have any advantage from it yeah and i think i think it's kind of the same thing you know some people start so far down the track that doesn't mean you shouldn't work. If it's something that you want, then you work for it. And sod talent, sod whether you came out of the box with natural aptitude, hard work will always uh, make up for not having any natural aptitude for something. Yeah. Um, it just might seem a bit dispiriting, but that's when you're in competition with yourself, not with anyone else, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so another thing the trope does is the representation of political issues, which, again, I think is one that people don't necessarily notice at the time, because if it's done well, you're not necessarily overtly noticing it. Yes. Um, A great example is obviously the Hunger Games. Uh, The Hunger Games is not just a big competition where, you know, death might might be the most likely outcome. It is actually a really intelligent discussion of things like classes and poverty and misuse of power. So um, I'm sure everyone understands the setup of the Hunger Games. But what you've got to think about is that they're happening in the wake of a crushed civil rebellion. Yeah. And the way that the capital, where the the haves... um, keep everybody else in line is by forcing the districts which are all interdependent on each other because they're all only allowed to produce one thing effectively Mm -hmm. so that's a very clever way of um, stopping them being self-sustaining and so they need the capital and they need everything else in order to get things shipped into them by taking their children um, once a year and forcing them to fight to the death in a gladiatorial arena and that seems ridiculous until you really think about it. And it's like, if you know that's going to happen and you cannot stop it happening, then that immediately puts up barriers to things like cooperation, friendship. So you start from this position of being really quite unnatural for humans, whereby you're not automatically in a state of cooperation. Yeah. You're in a state of, I've got to look after my family first, which is, you know, where we start with Katniss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's one of the big things also about Katniss is that she volunteers. No one usually, you know, if people volunteer, it would be for themselves. She volunteers for somebody else. That is different. No one volunteers for Peter, you know. 
No, well, I mean, Katniss wouldn't have volunteered if it hadn't been her sister. Exactly. The one person that she is desperate to protect. If any, it had been anyone else, Katniss would have been like, well, rather you than me dying. Yeah. She, she's not going out thinking, I want to start a rebellion. She's just thinking, I want to survive and I want Prim to survive, which means my mother has to survive. And I'm a bit iffy on whether she needs to survive, but I guess so. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, she's learnt a certain amount of cooperation with Gail, for example, because he's taught her some hunting tricks and she's taught him some gathering tricks and stuff. And, you know, all the alliances and things within the actual Hunger Games arena itself, that that's one of the cruel things about them, is that they the children will form alliances and then be forced to break them because only one person can win. Yeah. So they will be forced to kill their allies, to kill their people they start thinking of as friends as safe and it's once again doing this thing where it's like yeah you can try cooperating but what's going to happen is one of you will live and one of you will die yeah so it is the districts in microcosm in in this really i think it's quite difficult sometimes for people to really engage and yet it's to engage with the horrific reality of it and you know Suzanne Collins doesn't soften any of it in the books at all um, because people are like yeah, yeah but that would never happen and it's like well actually it could happen yeah similar things have happened not on the, the sci-fi end of the scale but the whole idea of taking people's children uh, as hostages of some kind yeah, yeah. that's happened the whole idea of taking people's children and forcing them to fight for entertainment, that's happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it really, really has. <laughs> so, yes, I, I completely agree. It, it is it is a good way of exploring political issues. I think one of the interesting things is that you read The Hunger Games or you watch the films and you're there and you're rooting for Katniss well most people are rooting for Katniss but <laughs> think something's gone wrong if you're not really but what you don't necessarily consider is that effectively Suzanne Collins has put you in the position of being one of the people in the capital watching the Hunger Games watching the entertainment Yeah, you're not at risk not really so you might be rooting but She's made you part of the audience who are part of the problem, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. It's really deftly done. And as we said before, classism is something which is kind of explored a lot in this because you do often get the, well, I've had everything kind of handed to me character. Well, um, you they've got the districts one and two, which are favoured, and yes. they actually have you know, their children are still being sacrificed, but they get less sympathy from the other districts because they are given training, specific training. They are careers. They're, they're, they are electing to put their children in or specific children in because they've got a good chance of winning. Yeah, um, and, and you know, it, it's a glory thing for them as well. Yeah, uh, because that's the other thing. is like, oh, well, if you win the Hunger Games, then you you and your family will never be hungry again. You'll get a great house on Victor's Row, etc. And it's like, yeah, but you haven't won for your district. What you've done is you've taken the one person from the district who might have managed to succeed, and then you've isolated them from everybody else. Yeah. But they're forced to go back and live there. And then you find in the second book that they haven't really escaped, that they're going to be forced into basically prostitution or something similar. Yeah. 
So yeah, an unending punishment in order to keep keep them grounded. It'll be really interesting to see interested to see how they manage to do the prequel book as a film when it comes out in November because it looks like they've managed to really capture the spirit of it again. Hmm. Okay, so um, another thing that it's obviously can be used for uh, quite well um, as a trope is um, world building. Yeah, absolutely. So, and adding a adding a, a strange sport is a great way of adding flavour. Yes, um, it, you know, and that can be about showing. Um, you know, culture, but it can also be about showing the, you know, what's physically, what the physical world is like. For example, having a sport which relies on flying or things like that, or a sport which is to do with sort of caves or underground labyrinths or things along those lines. It, it can show us the physical environment. Um, it's also a very clever way of kind of, um, drawing comparisons between existing cultures in our world um, and and your fake culture, particularly if you want to have lots of different sort of ethnicities or things like that. You know, some way, one way that people try to create that is to say, well, I'm going to be drawing a little bit upon this culture in the real world to create this culture in, 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 in my world or things like that. And there are I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of that, but one way of doing it is to say, well, okay, well, what kind of sports do people over here play? Because their terrain is very familiar to the terrain, is very similar to the terrain in, in the world that I'm creating. What do they play? Okay, I'm going to take little bits from that and put it into this world. So you can create parallels, comparisons, um, and help introduce people into the world, make it even more submersive because I think it, it does add a whole other layer when you hear about people playing games because it's a detail which sometimes is necessary to the story sometimes it isn't necessary exactly to the story itself but it makes it feel more real yeah I think it's where you can get great payoff in series as well as in maybe Maybe you didn't necessarily need it desperately in the first book, but if you introduce it gently in the first book, by the time you actually need it in the fifth book, it makes sense and the skill hasn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of back to talking about jousting again. Yes. <laughs> but, also, <laughs> but also other knightly pursuits and things. And I think um, it, it, the thing is, it, it's one of those things where the, the starting exercises for things which might happen in book one aren't necessarily that interesting so you don't put too much in but you put enough in so that people know that they're there so it's like harry getting on the broom for the first time or you know telling the broom to actually rise into your hand yeah um that's like yeah that's cool for five seconds but you don't want to watch five films where that's happening because that's not interesting but zooming around on it's really interesting however you need the setup in order for it to to pay off yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, there is obviously the satisfaction of winning. We, we're we so wired that we get a lot of satisfaction out of watching our favourite teams succeed or our favourite players succeed or our favourite characters succeed. So, again, it's that dopamine hit. Mm. Um, 
I'm trying to think of wins in books where, you know, I'm, you know, you kind of literally fist pumping the air. Um, and I think for me, again, it was sort of fourth wing and the threshing where you might get chosen by a dragon or a dragon might choose to just kill you because they want to get rid of the weakness from the herd kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the main character um, having an unusual bonding experience. And Rebecca Yaris, who wrote the book, kind of she foreshadowed something and then appeared to not deliver on it and then completely turned it on its head and foreshadowed something else and then gave you both things that you didn't think you you wanted and it was it was just really really well done i'm trying not to spoilify it but, <laughs> but it was kind of like a yes win but this is a win that has caused so many more problems <laughs> than it's solved yes <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Um, another thing, obviously, is the training montage. Yeah, which you find in literally every martial arts film ever, including some very other. <laughs> one day, I'm going to sit Madeline down and, you know, clockwork orange style, tie her to a chair, oh, and make her watch. Make her watch. Okay, not literally, but make <laughs> her watch some of the martial arts films I grew up with. Because <laughs> I think she'd basically be like, Okay, this explains a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the eye of the tiger. <laughs> yes. Yeah, basically. No, some of them, they're, they're... Some of them are really not great films, but they are... The training montages are just sort of like, yes, I'll just happily watch the training montage. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think we all love a training montage. Because it's it is that it's that slow but at the same time great progression of oh look we're we're watching we're we're seeing the change as it occurs <laughs> yeah the whole falling flat on your face thing without necessarily having to obviously montages don't really have an analog in books you can collapse the time frame a little bit and say and I'd fallen off the dragon for the fifty ninth time and fortunately it still decided to catch me before it hit the ground kind of thing yeah um, but you don't necessarily want a great detailed paragraph for each of those fifty nine times or whatever yeah um and that's what a montage does but visually and in a way that books can't quite replicate in the same way no I think I Probably a really good sort of montage is that is um, Mulan. Yeah, that's a great the, the whole <laughs> again martial arts. <laughs> yeah, martial arts. They really, really love it. Um, it's because actually learning martial arts takes years and years of focus and discipline and aching yes. muscles and bruises, and nobody wants to watch that because that would actually be very boring to watch. Yeah, and I think again, this is probably one of the. And I haven't watched it, to be fair. But it's one of the big criticisms that people had for the live-action Mulan was that she was just born inherently with this magical skill. Yeah. And there was a lot of satisfaction taken away from that because we want the training montage. We, we want do. to see her improving, getting better, struggling, and then using the skills that she already had, which were her creative thinking and her you know her problem solving her different way of looking at the world and using those to get the edge on on you know this on this competition on this training and slowly surely getting better and better because of it coping for the fact that she is actually starting off at a disadvantage by being you know phys female ergo physically less powerful than her male counterparts 
Yes. Because she hasn't gone through male puberty. Yes. Simple and, as that. And also because they will have, most of them will have done some kind of physical yes. training of some kind. And, and will have been allowed to run around and do physically active things, whereas she's kind of like, well, no, you, you're with matchmaking you so yes you you won't have been kept in a tower or anything but you also won't have been allowed to run around since you were a child kind of thing yeah so all the disadvantages stacking up but i haven't seen the live action one either i've kind of lost interest in disney's live action films gotta say yeah same um training montages uh just trying to think of a I'm trying to think of one that doesn't include a muscle-bound man doing something, <laughs> but an awful lot of them do. They really do. Um, they're, they're still very fun to watch, but certainly the 80s and 90s, early 90s um, martial arts films were, were very rife with... Yes, Jean-Claude Van Damme and his thing where he's got to be doing the splits yes, all the time. all the time, constantly. All the time, box splits, all the time. It's not actually a practical fighting stance. I just want to point that out. Yeah, it, it really isn't. Nor is it comfortable. Um. <laughs> it's like it's great that you're you're flexible and and what have you, but it's you can kick someone in the head without doing box splits. You really can. Yes. There is there is no situation in an actual live fight where I thought, yes, I must go into box splits right now. <laughs> box splits, that's what's going to make the difference in this, in this fight. Yeah. Um, there's the coming of age aspect. And again, you don't necessarily think competition coming of age, but actually, if you think about it, your teenage years are kind of a competition. They're largely yeah. a competition against yourself, but they're a perceived competition against other people as well. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, having a sort of competitive element, actually, it, it, there's a reason it turns up in so many teen novels, I think. Yeah. Because of this. Um, I My example, again, is The Karate Kid, which, yes, is a very 80s film, but it is actually a really great coming-of-age story because his biggest opponent is his, is himself, ultimately, and learning his own discipline, uh, self-discipline, and how to conquer himself, which is kind of the big thing with with karate, or certainly with, with Gojiro, which is the karate they used badly, I might add. <laughs> they use Shotokan and uh, Gojiro, both styles I have black belts in, and, and I watch the Karate Kid and go, oh my god. <laughs> but ignoring the actual karate they were doing, um, the, the premise is is correct. And that idea of coming of age being, you, you've come of age, you've really become an adult in yourself when you have defeated defeated your own inner demon to a certain extent or at least you know you know put it on a chain made it work yeah yeah absolutely um there's also then the the confronting adversity via proxy yeah let's say you're having a bit of a shit time in life and you really find that you're connecting with fiction that has competition in it or you know <laughs> something that's way way worse like the hunger games again um that's it's one of the things that fiction does is it presents you adversity in a safe format it, that is worse than whatever you're dealing with and gives you that escapism and um 
that's one of the gifts is is the sense of proportion that that then confers. Um, your own problems, your own inescapable situations seem just that little bit easier to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's, like I said, for me, the, the whole kind of thing brings together a lot of other tropes. Or rather, it it can work so well with other tropes that you often see them bundled together. Like, uh, like, um, Five Spice. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the yuckiest spice ever, but okay. Okay, I, I don't actually know what it tastes like, but what I mean is that, you know, <laughs> okay, let's see pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice. That's not actually pumpkin flavoured. Those are d- different spices, you know, put together, like cloves and cinnamon and nutmeg, etc. Yeah. Right? It's that's kind of that's kind of what it is. So you'll get you'll get the sort of the competition. You will get the found family, um, and you will get that sort of that coming of age or the progressiveness. Um, it, it's often also tied in with overcoming trauma. Yeah, as well and confronting um, yourself, confronting enemies, learning confidence, etc. So. I, I'm not surprised that we find it so satisfying as a form of storytelling. No, definitely not. Okay, so have we ever used this trope ourselves? <laughs> well, I mean, you have. I, I'm, I'm making a very blank expression right now. I think I have, but I can't. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Um, I guess yes, I have. If you think I am the silence and the whole yes, it's more, more, that was more of a musical show rather than a competition. But there was definitely a competitive element to it. Yes, um, and the whole competition becomes an end in and of itself to try and work out who's leading the, this this dark column as well. So yes, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Because competitions are not nerve-wracking enough. You yeah, have to put have to put demon worship in yeah, there. Yeah, let's, well. let's put a demon worship. Let's put some demon worship in there as well, just to keep people really on their toes. <laughs> I think I could make a case for um, using the trope obliquely in Nightmare Trail as well. Yes. Because it's not really a competition, but then they are set three specific trials that they have to get through, which I think taps into that feel of it. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's not a it's not a competition per se, but it's a it's a game. <laughs> yeah, with a deadly outcome. With a deadly outcome, dum, dum, dum. and <laughs> it is rather competitive. You know, he yes. is being pretty competitive because, like you said, <laughs> if you lose, you die. <laughs> you get eaten. <laughs> Yeah, if you lose, I'm going to digest you slowly over 27 years or so. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy. Not not something that a lot of people want, really. No, for some not, weird not reason. Sure, really. um, so, yeah, I would say that there's definitely a, a, a competitive element there. I'm, I'm not really sure whether I've used it. Yet. Yet. Yeah, give me some time. There was a, I mean, there was just a tiny, there's a tiny wincy bit of it, I think, in the Sons of Thestian, um, in terms of 
the well there there's the, the little music duel scene yeah um which again isn't really a competition but there's there's this slight sort of sense of competition between um Zachary and Rufus uh though it's more of a, a kind of a battle but there's this underlying competition com- competitive element but I wouldn't really kind of say that that is really that trope we do get a tiny bit of it again in um some of the training that Joshua goes through in book two yeah but but other than that I haven't used it yet but I do have a plan to kind of use it in um some upcoming work so we'll see whether I succeed with it I will say no more (laughs) what about you do you you have any plans to I'm sure I yes something for Melanie Beckett and I won't go into detail (laughs) because it's um, well I'm hoping it's going to be funny but it might just turn out to be really horrific so we'll we'll see yeah knowing you you'd be like this is meant to be funny but uh, instead it's (laughs) the coin fell tails up so yeah. sorry guys it's just really gory and traumatic instead sorry about that um okay our favorite iterations of the trope i'm not sure this one counts but in the disney um the sword and the stone i really i've always loved the wizard's duel yeah yeah honestly um i I'm, think because it's a battle with of wits yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Battle of Wits. Obviously, I love the Hunger Games as well, and um, many of the things that we've already mentioned. Mm. Um, for Hunger Games, I would say, to be honest, to be honest, same with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The actual the maze at the end was better in the book, and the same with the Hunger Games. It the, the actual trials themselves was better in the book. Um, they, I think, they had for the Hunger Games. They had to kind of make it slightly less horrific in order for it to fit the right age certificate for the film yeah but that did mean i think yeah as you said some things got lost yeah but it was still pretty horrific yes <laughs> yes well you know me i want i want the full frontal horror yes you know? yeah you no do. fig leaves no fig leaves <laughs> you heard the woman get rid of the fig leaves so it all hang out. Okay, moving on. How about you? I mean, I think yeah, we we have kind of mentioned several of them. Um, it, it's really hard to say. It's one of those ones where I think I could just go. I really like this one. Oh, and this one, and this one. And I think the fact is that I just I really really do like it when it appears in stories. Yeah. When it's done properly, I, I find it brilliant and i you know i've seen it be used in a lot of stories you know we we've talked about we've we've mentioned a lot of my favorite books and films so far already in terms of how they've used it so um i'll tell you what i'll i'll mention some some anime that that we see it a lot in in fact most shonen kind of anime most action sort of anime you will you will tend to find there is a there is a competition moment uh, so it was rife in Naruto from the beginning with the Chunin exams and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, My Hero Academia, they had that as well. And I think probably that is one of the most satisfying ones is when they're doing... It's their it's essentially their sports day kind of thing. Uh, but yeah. it's the hero course. And uh, 
the main character is at a massive disadvantage. He was born, everyone in this society was born with some kind of magic, kind of, they're called quirks, some kind of super, super human ability. And there are a few people who aren't born with it. And he was one of the people who wasn't born with it. So his whole life, he has been bullied. He has been through these terrible things. And despite that, he has always wanted to be a hero, a superhero. Um, but you really do need a quirk to be a hero. Yeah. And the premise is that right at the beginning, he meets his, like, his number one hero. The guy he looks up to, the guy he admires more than anyone else. Um, and this guy actually reveals that he has uh, his quirk, his ability, his superpower quirk, was actually given to him and he can give it to other people as well. Yeah. Um, so he gives it to this kid who then basically has to develop it. But the problem is that he wasn't born with it and it's a power building quirk. Which means that his body initially isn't actually prepared to use it. So the first time he uses it, he breaks all of his limbs. Oh god! So, um, so yeah, because a bit, basically his his he physically can't keep up with the power that's there. Um, so he has to be very very careful when using it. Um, and at this, particularly in this stage of the story, he still doesn't have control of it. And during the first uh, part of this competition, they have essentially, it's like an obstacle course race, but with like giant robots that they have to fight. And there's like <laughs> a, course. they have to cross a field of landmines. They're like soft landmines so that people will just get blown a little bit, but it's a race. And he wins the race in the most amazing way by basically he knows that if he tries to use his superpower quirk to make himself faster his legs will break and he won't be able to compete in the rest of the competition and he won't actually last so he he digs up a whole bunch of landmines puts them all in one place grabs hold of a sheet of metal from one of the broken robots and jumps on top of it and launches himself towards the finish line and honestly it is one of the most exciting and brilliant moments because you are you are with him you everyone else has these these advantages and he just has to use his brain and his grit and push against his childhood bully and his current rival um in front of everyone for the first time in his life and it is so satisfying like honestly i think it's probably one of the, it's one of the ones that's my favorite that comes to mind right now cool sounds like a really it good really one. is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh right well that is kind of us for this episode so um over to you guys do you have favorite iterations of this trope have we mentioned any examples have we not mentioned any examples you think we should have done let us yeah know. um and do you have any recommendations for us you know we'd love to hear from them um we'd love to hear from them yes we'd love to hear from your recommendations no, we'd love to hear from you about your recommendations uh, before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and uh, i'm actually going to do something a little bit odd because i'm going to recommend a sci-fi Yes, <laughs> I knew I'd get you. You get. I was. You know me. I'm still not a massive consumer of sci-fi, uh, but 
I have been watching uh, the most uh, recent Star Trek, which is the Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And I have been really, really enjoying it. Now, a lot of the modern Star Trek stuff has had some problems to the point that people have actually said, well, the Orville is more like Star Trek than Star Trek nowadays. But yeah, I really exactly. do feel like Strange New Worlds has actually found the balance. It is just brilliant the cast is fantastic the uh, and that's not just in terms of the actors but also the cast of characters it's really good um i feel like they've they have managed to nod and sort of pay tribute to all of the of the previous star trek so no matter which one you enjoyed the most whether you liked the modern stuff whether you didn't like the modern stuff they haven't you know shit on anyone in order to kind of to get this they haven't tried to rewrite anything it is set in another sort of timeline sort of creation world and i have really really enjoyed it um i i didn't think that i would like pike as a captain um and i honestly love him i love him he is like the dad of the ship you've got a young spock as well um there's all sorts of shenanigans um it is honestly really, really excellent. Um, I highly recommend people check it out. Cool. Um, I, I'm obviously going to. It's just we're waiting until we've got several things on that streaming channel yes, before, before we, you. Before we <laughs> yeah, <it>. completely understand. <laughs> it's like you just jump between streaming channels. <laughs> like, okay, they've got this yeah. this month, so I'm just going to go get a <laughs> subscription with them. And then... Cancel yep. that subscription and jump to this one. Yep. Yes, I feel you. Yeah. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.